0: We've been in a series called Views, and this series is all about having a gospel worldview. And it is very unfortunate if you just walked in for the first time because you really need weeks one, two, and three for this to make sense. A gospel worldview is learning to see the world through the lens of the gospel. So look up here. Don't miss this. You don't realize this but every single one of you has a different worldview. You have a lens that you see your life and what's happening in the world, and that lens is formulated by the combination of your life experiences, of your family relationships, of things that have happened to you that you had no control over, that have developed you into the person that you are today. And everybody's worldview is shaped by different factors. But here's what we're saying. As followers of Jesus, we don't get to choose our worldview and use the Bible as a resource for advice. We humbly lift our eyes to Jesus and we frame our worldview through the lens of the gospel with the Bible as our source. That means you don't wake up in the morning and decide how you want to see the world depending on your opinion for the day. You wake up as a Christian going, Jesus, not only have you changed my life forever and I'll never be the same, more than I'll never be the same, I'll never see the same. I see people differently. I see my purpose differently. I see my life differently. I see the breath and the life that you have given me today through the lens of the good news of who Jesus is. And so in week one, we talked about five absolutely non-negotiable foundational truths We are saved. We live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. We don't ever negotiate on those things. Those are the the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, by the way. But in the last two weeks, we're asking foundational questions about our own lives. Two weeks ago, we asked this deep question. Why am I here? Why do I have breath in my lungs? Why am I on this planet? Why was I created? And the answer, cover to cover through the Scriptures, is this personal communion with God. You were created by a relational God for a relationship with him. And so when we pray and read our Bibles, we're not checking the boxes for our spiritual disciplines of the day. We're actually stepping into the reason why we have breath and the reason why we exist. But watch this. You weren't just created for personal communion with God. You were also created for relational community with other believers. And the two are not independent of each other. They're interdependent. Love God and love people, that's not separate sentences. They're one and the same. And so God has created us to be a part of this body of believers where we have a relationship with Jesus personally, but it's framed in our relationships with other people over time. So we asked the question last week, who are your people? Like, who are my people? Who are, who's carrying you to Jesus? And who are you carrying to have a relationship with Jesus that sustains over time? And here's what I'll promise you. If you get those two things right, if you have consistent time alone with God and you have the right friends, you will remain in a relationship with Jesus for the rest of your life. Like you might get a lot of things wrong. Scratch that. You will get a lot of things wrong. You will struggle. You will be inconsistent. You will have seasons where you feel like God's a million miles away. But you will sustain in your faith if you consistently spend time alone with God, and you got the right friends around you. And those are huge for your worldview. But now I want to turn the question outward. We've been asking some inward questions about ourselves. Now I want to ask a very intimate and sort of invasive question about God. The sermon is going to be deep. For some of you, you're going to wonder if I know the exact situation that you're going through right now personally, and I don't. But I just feel like this sermon is for the one who's in a situation and a season that is beyond their ability to endure another day. If you're in a lot of pain and the last year has pushed you beyond what you thought possible from the inside out, tonight is for you. And it's a question that I want to ask in your worldview about the character of God. This installment of our view series is titled, Does God Care? Does God Care? I know that's intense. And so to lighten the moment, I want you to look at somebody next to you and just ask them, Do you even care about me? Do you even care? Do you really? <laughs> Some of y'all just accidentally stepped into a DTR. You're like, I didn't know we were going there. We just sat next to each other. Do you even care? You want to know why that's such an intense question? It's because that question calls into motion the idea that the other person's intentions for you are on trial. When you say, Does God care? You are asking, Is God intimately and intricately involved in the details of my life? And is his heart for my good and compassionate toward me? Now, I believe this is a more foundational question for your worldview than the popular question that a lot of people like to ask, which is, Does God exist? In fact, a lot of people would say that's the most important question for you to answer for your worldview. I actually don't think that question is that important because I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It takes a lot of faith to be an atheist. To believe that there is no God and to believe that we are flying on a planet through outer space with all of this creation and all of these relationships around us. At the same time, we are flying around a star that heats our planet up just enough that if it was an inch closer would burn us to death. And if it was an inch further away, we would freeze to death. And we're loaded with meaning and we're loaded with relationships and we're overwhelmed by the intricacies of our own bodies and minds. For you to look at that and go, there is no creator this just randomly happened that takes faith that takes blind faith to the degree that I would focus on the word blind because you're choosing not to see what's obviously there See, the biggest enemy of a Christian worldview is not actually an atheistic worldview atheism is dying out in our day because anyone who's reasonable or takes time to research makes room for the fact that there could be a creator If you are truly an atheist, someone who says, I don't believe that there's any possibility that a God, any God exists. I just don't believe in a God. I don't ascribe to religion. No God, we're just here randomly. This is the life that we have and we deal with it. To believe that, you actually have to be so arrogant that you believe that you're God. Because to have that type of knowledge, you would have to have a full knowledge of all the alternatives and eliminate them, which would make you God, and you just said you don't believe in God, so you don't believe in yourself. An atheistic worldview is turned upside down very, very, very quickly. And if you have friends who are atheists, I say this humbly. I'm not saying this to slam atheists from the very beginning of this sermon. I'm just saying when someone's an atheist, they're usually not an atheist because they've genuinely done research. They're usually an atheist because they're wounded and they're hurt by the church, or by God, and they're reacting. Most of the people that you interact with who are not Christians because of studies or because of science or because of an intellectual pursuit to the religious studies of our day, most of them are actually not atheists. They're what's called agnostic. And agnostic is different. Being an agnostic is when you acknowledge that there could be a God. There could be a higher power. There could be a creator. That's what I mean by it opens your mind to, okay, that could be possible. But agnostics believe that if there is a God, he or she or it cannot be knowable by us, and they would definitely take it a level deeper and say if they do exist and they could be knowable, they're definitely not intimately and intricately involved in our lives at all. They do not care. And that type of worldview, even though I don't agree with it, I understand it. I understand it because when you think about what Christians propose on paper, there is what seems to be a logical fallacy that hits almost immediately. And it's this. We claim to be worshiping a God who's all loving, all powerful and in total control of every detail surrounding our lives and we are living on a planet and living in physical bodies that are broken by sin and evil and darkness, and the evidence is exposed every single day. And so when an agnostic actually looks at the claim of a God who is love, who's in full control, and whose heart is for people, and then looks around at Simple evidences of suffering and sin that you and I would go, that's just normal. Like slavery has become normal. Evil has become normative. Rape all over the place. Constant levels of divorce and cancer and disease and death and sickness. And they look around and go, how can you claim that your God is this loving father who's sovereign and in control? And yet the world as a whole is so full of darkness. And watch this. This is the one that makes it personal. So is my life. And most of you who are here, you're not atheists, and you're not an agnostic. You are a Christian. You're a believer in Jesus. But if your worldview doesn't reconcile these two things, you will not be able to sustain a lifelong relationship with God. Because sooner or later, and for most of you, this has already happened, sooner or later, you will have something happen in your life where it feels like God is totally unaware or totally unresponsive. And it will seem like the louder you call on him, and the more you pump your fist into the ground and raise your voice in prayer, the more he doesn't respond. Or you ever prayed about something and God does the opposite? And it's like, God, I want to get married, and then you get broken up with. It's like, God, I I want a job, and you get fired from the one you do have. God, we want healing, and the person you're praying for gets worse. God, I want clarity and things become more unclear. And and you start having this relationship with God where the evidence of the circumstances in front of you look like he's either not aware or not taking action in light of what I'm saying. And some of your prayers will have blatant black and white clarity about what God should do in your mind. And your ability in that moment to reconcile a God who could do things according to what looks so good and so right in a moment to you. And a God who chooses not to and chooses to allow you to walk through pain and allow you to have sleepless nights and allow you to not figure things out and allow people in your life to die and allow people in your life to stab you in the back and you just watch it over and over and over again. If your worldview doesn't reconcile his total control and love for you and the evidence of those things, your worldview is not going to sustain and being rooted in the gospel. So here's what we gotta see and I promise I'm not trying to depress you. I'm trying to call it like it is. Some of you have a weak gospel worldview because you're not willing to ask the hard questions. You're like, does God care? Are we even allowed to ask that? You have to ask God the hard questions because the answers that are actually there in scripture are what are going to frame your view of him moving forward. So here's what we're going to do. We've been looking at the gospel of Mark this whole series. This quick, fast-paced gospel where you get these different views of the life of Jesus. And we're trying to let these views inform our view of who God is. And the story that we're going to look at tonight is going to tell you everything you need to know to trust a God you do not always understand. And I want you to lean in with me on this. I think God's going to do something so special. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up. Is this talk too intense for a Bible drill tonight? I kind of feel like we're already there. Some of you are like, oh yeah, but you already brought Asa up there. Okay, if you're married or dating someone or engaged, turn with me to Mark chapter four, verse 35. Everybody else, Bible's in the air, in the air. You can look around. We're all gonna turn there. Keep them up if you're holding up an ESV Bible, just so y'all can like find each other to go to a coffee house and study. Now hold up your NIV Bible, these are the people who want to go on normal dates, okay. Hold up your NLT Bible, if you have NLT. These are some. That's some fun. Um, I do love NLT, it's like loaded with really good language. Guys, most of the time, I, this is an NIV Bible, by the way, so just so you know, but I love ESV and I'm actually going to be reading from ESV tonight. People ask me all the time, which translation of your Bible's the favorite? I've memorized most of NIV and I think ESV is truer to the language, but misses out on the color of the story. Sometimes mostly NLT, NIV and ESV. But honestly, I always say this, my favorite version of the Bible is the one you read the most, like just read the word of God. And I hope you got a date. Mark chapter four, verse 35. I want to tell you about this. Okay. This moment in the life of Jesus happens after he preaches the parable of the sower. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? What I didn't tell you a couple weeks ago is that Jesus actually preached from a boat toward a shore full of people. 2,000 years ago, no microphones. So you had to find natural ways to amplify your voice. One of them was to talk out from shore and let the sound waves bounce off the water and spread all the way to a bunch of people. Now, Jesus finishes that sermon, and there's going to be a transitional moment where he decides that him and the disciples are going to make a move. And I just wanted to include this for somebody's life individually. Sometimes God does his most intimate work in your life during seasons of transition, Sometimes the lessons you remember the most that God showed you happens when you're moving from one season to another, out of a relationship that you thought was going to last a lifetime, out of a season where you were majoring in this, out of a moment where you thought life was going to look like this. And what I remember looking back on my journey is that the clearest words I've gotten from God have happened in moments of transition. When stuff happens where I did not know what was going to happen next and everything was unclear and unfamiliar. Watch what happens in this moment. Mark chapter four, verse 35. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here we go. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. Now, I, I just want to read through the whole story, but I have to tell you that that collection of sentences is loaded with irrelevant details. And that's huge if you're verifying the historicity of an eyewitness account. You guys know when eyewitnesses tell stories that they saw in real time, they include stuff that's not important for the story. So I read that and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter that you took Jesus in the boat. Who cares if he came back to shore and like prayed over some babies and had a little time there and then left? Who cares that there's other boats all around? You want to know why those details are included? Because someone's recalling this from memory. When you read a fictional story, you read something where somebody puts details in a story to contribute toward a narrative. But when you tell a story to your friends, you say all kind of random stuff as you remember it. Like th- think about this. If you if you let, let's just say you had a story about something that happened on Sanford lawn and the way you recall it is loaded with stuff that's not actually relevant to the narrative. So you say like it was like 4:30. I remember it and I was going downtown and I was like, do I need to pay for parking? They usually like they will they will get you. And so you're like I I I don't, I don't know 30 minutes it's going to be free. I got to figure this out. Okay, okay. I'm going to pay for parking, but then I, I remember I was walking towards San Fernando. I remember I saw my friend at Taco Mama. They were sitting outside and I saw him. I wave to him and I saw that they were having a margarita and I was like it's 4:30, but you do you. And so I saw and then I went to San Fernando. Here's what happened. And it's like why did you include all of that? Cuz that's the way the human brain works. When you have an eyewitness account, you always look for what seems like an irrelevant detail. And I love, this is Peter's eyewitness account written by Mark. And I know for some of you, you might call yourself agnostic tonight. You might be in a place where you want to study deeper about the Bible. I promise when you look into the deeper things to search out whether or not the Bible is actually accurate, it is. And I just include that detail for you. But let's get to the important part. Here we go. Mark chapter 4, verse 37. Was that helpful for anybody? I like that story. And I like Taco Mama. Here we go. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking in the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Don't miss this. The combination of darkness, water, and a chaotic storm is the biblical symbol for judgment and chaos. So you've got a nighttime water storm that would signal to any reader of the Bible that this is the the ultimate moment of the darkness overwhelming a group of people. And they're out there and they're on this sea where some of the disciples were fishermen. They have probably heard stories and know friends who have passed away from being in storms like the one that they are in. And they're setting out to try to go across the other side and Jesus is asleep. I love that it includes this irrelevant detail on the cushion. He's got his tempur mattress in the stern. They wake him up. They ask him this question, which is where we're living tonight. Do you not care that we're about to die? And Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, calms them completely, and then has a conversation with his disciples where he is going to let them have it. And at the end of the story, the disciples are actually, pay attention to this detail, they're going to be more afraid on calm water than they were in the middle of the storm. They're more terrified at the end of the story than they were in the middle of the storm. Now, the reason why I include all those details is because this narrative is almost word for word the identical narrative from the book of Jonah. Remember Jonah, Vacation Bible School? Some of you were here in church a couple years ago. I did a series on Jonah. It's actually one of my personal favorite series that we've ever done. You can find it in the archives if you want. But in Jonah chapter one, you know the story, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and preach. But he gets on a boat, and he goes to Tarshish in the opposite direction, and a storm breaks out. And what happens? Jonah falls asleep in the stern, and he's in this deep sleep. And as the storm breaks out, the sailors come down there, and they're like, Jonah, do you not care that you're calling your God? We're going to cast lots and see whose fault this storm is. And Jonah says, no, I can tell you right now, it's my fault. You need to throw me into the sea, and everything will be calm. The sailors throw Jonah in the sea, everything becomes calm, and at the end of the story, the sailors are more afraid because they fear God than they were in the middle of the storm. This is the same story. Why do I tell you that? Because in a major way, Jesus is trying to tell a bigger story in the midst of a smaller story. The bigger story is this, Jesus is the greater Jonah. When Jesus was around on planet Earth, he said, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah, where the Son of Man will go into the grave for three days but come out alive. So watch this. Jonah was thrown into a storm to calm it down and swallowed by a fish for three days and spit out on dry ground. But Jesus is saying, There's a storm called sin and death and hell that's so violent and so raging that the only way to calm it will be if I jump down into to the depths of death and sit there for three days. But after three days, I'm not still going to be in that grave. I'm coming out just like Jonah came out and you can know life today because Jesus is risen from the dead. I want you to get a message tonight about the peace that's available to you in God. And I want you to wrestle with some deep truths. But more than I want anything, I want you to hear the gospel. The good news is this. Jesus has done on your behalf what you can never do on your own. And all you have to do is say yes to his finished work. By dying and rising again and being alive at the throne of the Father, he sends us the Spirit and you can know life right here and right now. Jesus is the greater Jonah. And he came to meet our ultimate needs more than he came to meet our immediate needs, but he does not ignore those. He's your Savior, he's your Lord, and he's your good shepherd. Now, Jesus gets frustrated in this story. And I don't think he gets frustrated because he got awakened in the middle of the night. How many of you are heavy sleepers? Like, when you fall asleep, you are out. Your friends could just, like, punch you and you would not wake up. That's me. When we had Aniston. It was a struggle in our marriage because my wife was like, there are so many nights where I tried to wake you up and and it was not physically possible. You guys know, like when you have a baby, you don't know this. Um, When you're in the hospital, you, you have a baby, like you keep, you keep giving your wife ice chips, and, and, and that's like all she can have when, when she's going to labor and all this stuff. And so there's all this ice. She said the first night we were in the hospital, I was so dead asleep, she was throwing ice at me on the couch over there to go and get our crying child who was just born. But that's how deep I sleep. How I many of you are light sleepers? Like anything can wake you up at any time. I'm so sorry, guys. Jesus was not like you. Jesus is sleeping through a storm that could kill him and his disciples. The man, you want to know why he slept so deep? Oh, this is, I've not mentioned this all day because he knew who he was and he knew in whose hands he trusted In, I'm telling you, Jesus was a deep sleeper, but I don't think he was mad about being awakened, even though I would have been. You know what he was mad about? Did y'all just say, whoa, because you've been here all four times and you know I haven't thrown that in all day and you're like, thank you, something new. God's good, right? I don't think Jesus was frustrated because they woke him up. I think he was frustrated by the question. Do you not care? Do do you not care that we're about to die? And Jesus is teaching them that the presence of a storm out there does not equal the absence of his love and care. Pay very close attention to what I just said. The presence of a storm and chaos and darkness does not equal the absence of God's love and care and compassion toward you right now. And too many times we interpret the goodness of God in a situation through the lens of what we see him currently doing. And if what's happening right now is we're about to die and what I see you doing is you're asleep, my conclusion is you don't care. And Jesus goes, listen, you can wake me up and you can ask me a lot of questions. You cannot ask me that. Because I have the capacity to be infinitely caring about you, and at the exact same time, your life could be spinning out of control. Those two things can coexist, and they're going to have to coexist in your worldview. And the way Jesus has prescribed for you and I to actually accept those two things is to walk by faith in His Word. Now, this is where this talk is going to get so simple, but yet so deep. I actually believe. Jesus expected the disciples to be able to navigate this storm by faith, but not a delusional, annoying Christian faith. You guys ever talk to that person who's like, guys, why are you freaking out? We're going to heaven forever. Who cares if we could die? Who cares about all the bad things that are happening in the world? We just need to accept that we're going to heaven and calm down. It's like, no, not only is that delusional, it's annoying. Jesus is not expecting them to sit Indian style and go, you know, it looks like we're about to die out there, but... We'll be fine. Jesus is with us. But he's also not expecting them to question his care for them because he gave them enough to make it through this storm. And you probably didn't even see what he gave them. You probably thought it was one of those irrelevant details at the beginning of the story, but it is not irrelevant at all. In fact, it's the point of the entire narrative. Go back to the very beginning of what we read. Go to verse 35. On that day... When evening came, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. I'm going to tell you what this means, but I want you to read the Bible for yourself. Do you see it? On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. The disciples were expected to not freak out about the fact that God seems like he's asleep and seems like he doesn't notice. He wanted them to hold on to what he said, even when what he said looks nothing like what they see. The moment Jesus said, we're going to the other side, guess what? They were all safe and sound on the other side. If Jesus says it, he means it. He's a man of his word. And so it's not that between saying that and the end of the story, everything's pretty and amazing and comfortable. It's just that you can hold God to be faithful to keep every promises he speaks in his word. Every single promise he ever utters. Why? Because the end of the story is always going to be what he spoke at the beginning. You didn't even read the end of the story. The end of the story is actually the beginning of the next story. In Mark chapter five, verse one, read this. This is so good. I saw this in seminary and I've been waiting to preach about it until right now. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Every single time Jesus says, let's go there, you're going there. And if there is heaven forever, you need to hold on to his word. But too many of you are holding God accountable for promises he never made to you. He literally promised trouble and difficulty and persecution and tribulation for all of us who love him and serve him. He also promised that our hearts didn't need to be troubled by that because he would never leave us nor forsake us. And so when you, watch this, when you shift the object of your faith from being what you see happening right in front of you to what God said, the object becomes something firm. You know, your faith has no value without strength in the object you're not saved by your faith. You're saved by the fact that your faith is in Jesus. Some of you need to redistribute where you're anchoring your soul tonight. Too many of you are anchored to the way things are going right now, and your relationship with God shows it. What you've got to do is you've got to learn to tie your soul, what, to the promises of God. Here's, what, here's, what, here's the message. What God promises with words, he fulfills with action. What God promises with words, he fulfills with action. God is faithful to keep every promise he made, and every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus. But this, this is not about writing down memory verses and going, okay, God's going to do all of this. It's learning how to make the peace of your soul the voice of your shepherd. Jesus, this is so deep, I want this to land. Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. and The Word was God, he was with God. Nothing was created without him. So Jesus is actually the voice that speaks creation into being. In this story, it is his voice that in a moment calms everything that the disciples are afraid of. You want to know what's so beautiful about that? It says, quiet, be still. And it says, the sea came to a great calm. You want to know what that translated in Greek means? It means the sea became like glass, not even moving. You want to know why the sea obeyed that quickly? Because that wasn't the first time the sea had heard that voice. That is the voice that created the world. And that is the voice that is intended to give you peace. And so what you have to learn to do with your life is not just go, okay, I, just, I, gotta, I gotta trust in enough verses instead of focusing on what I see in real time. No, you gotta let the promises of God lay anchor in your heart to where you do see a situation that breaks your heart and you do see suffering in the world and you do cry and you do struggle, and you do go into the stern and go, Jesus, I don't get it. I don't see what you're doing, and I'm hurting, and I'm struggling. Jesus can handle a prayer like that, but Jesus does not accept our questioning of his character and his intentions for our lives because of what we see in front of us. He will not accept, do you even care about me? No, I made it loud and clear how much I care when I spread my arms open to die for you on a cross. My care for you is not in question. It's your willingness to accept that what I do does not always equate with what you think is best. And your willingness to not only accept that, but to press in for more of me when life doesn't make sense and when what God said doesn't look like what you see, that will determine whether or not you experience true intimacy with God. Maybe... Maybe the storm is an invitation to wake up Jesus. Maybe Jesus caused the storm for fellowship. But too many of you take storms in your life as the evidence that God's doing something wrong. Maybe it's God's invitation into knowing him to a depth and an intimacy that you've never known him before. Maybe it's an invitation for more in prayer. But that prayer cannot be rooted in, do you even care? Oh, he cares. He's faithful to keep every promise he ever made you. But those promises are not intended to be these external things that you believe will happen one day. They're intended to be the anchor of your heart, guiding you into personal communion with God. So the question tonight, I don't, I don't believe the question of tonight is does God care? He's made that loud and clear. God does care for you. And he doesn't just care for you in a sense that Jesus died for you. He cares for you for, in more ways than you've given him credit for today. Like you woke up today and most of you, if not all of you, did not thank him for the breath that you're still breathing. You did not thank him for the shirt on your back or the food that you enjoy. Some of you've been fasting. You're like, I thanked him for that this time around. Like the common grace that we all enjoy as believers is something none of us has earned. God clearly cares for us. Jesus said, if I clothe... The grass of the field, the flowers of the field, and, and, and give the birds what they need. How much more does your God care for you? No, God cares for you. When you're asking the question, does God care, what you're really asking at a core level is this question. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? And the enemy would love to have you not only question God at his word, but also question God's intentions for your life. When the enemy tempted Adam and Eve, what did he say? He said, did God really say, don't eat from any tree? No, he didn't say that. He said, don't eat from this one tree. But then the enemy pressed it further. He didn't just question on whether or not God's a man of his word. He questioned God's intention for the good of humanity. You will not surely die. He knows you'll be like him if you eat this fruit. You not only have to get to a place where you agree that God's word is what sustains you through every storm, but you have to get to a place where you trust God's heart more than you ask him what he's doing with his hands. I trust your heart for me is good and it is kind. You're not just my shepherd, you are the good shepherd. And here's the bad news about a sermon like this. And it just, I I feel like it's so intense and I want to give you good news and good news and good news. But here's the harsh reality. I know I'm looking at a group of people who's about to face more pain in the next 10 or 20 years than they have signed up for. I know because I've been there. I know that you're about to attend funerals that you didn't plan on attending. I know that there will be divorces that you never thought possible. And there will be a diagnosis that hits that you look at God and question his goodness. I know that's happening. And I know that's coming your way. And what I want you to know is this, you have a shepherd who's willing to walk you through some dark valleys, but if you're following a good shepherd, you're going through the valley. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's good news. But what I hate about that Psalm is though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You want to know what I hate about that? I'm like, listen, if you're a good shepherd, why we got to go through the valley? Why don't we go around the valley? Why don't we go under the valley? Why don't we fly over the valley? Why through the valley? And the only answer is that your shepherd is so good that he knows that what's on the other side of that journey is better and far outweighs the pain that you're experiencing right now. Too many of you go through unspeakable pain and you spend the entire time trying to figure out why God did it. I just want to tell you, he'll give you glimpses. He'll give you answers. You're not going to see that until heaven. You really aren't until the weight of glory far surpasses the weight of your suffering. And so until then, don't anchor your faith to getting an explanation from God. Anchor your faith to the fact that I will never be able to control where my life is going and where you're taking me, but I can control where I place my trust. I trust your word and I trust your heart and your intentions toward me, that they are good and they are kind. Even when you hurt me and even when you take me down roads that I'm questioning whether or not you even see how much pain that I'm in. I trust you and I believe in you. The disciples were more scared at the end than in the middle of the storm. Do you wanna know why? They were scared of the storm because they couldn't predict where it was going and they couldn't control the outcome. That's what makes a storm so scary. That's what makes hard times scary. I don't know how this is gonna end and I can't control it. It's so unpredictable, it's so uncontrollable. Why are they more scared in a calm sea? You want to know why? Because they found out that the one who was in the boat with them was more uncontrollable and unpredictable than the storm itself. Jesus is good and kind and loving, but he is not safe. He will intentionally lead you down roads that will cause you to question whether or not he knows where you're going or how much pain you are in. But never, never because he wants to hurt you. Always, ultimately, for your good. And I got, I'm all into like writing down the promises of God. This message tonight is not like a side message for me where it's like, cool, we got to speak to people who are going through a tough time. This is a life message. When I get promises from God, by the way, promises are not just like repeating Bible verses. It's from having a relationship with God. You pray and you read the word of God long enough, you're going to receive words from God and you need to write them down. Now, not all of them will end up being from God. Some of them was things that you made up. Like, it's like, he just promised me that we're gonna get married. No, that was you. Like, that was 100% you. Everyone around you is saying no. The Holy Spirit is saying no. We're all saying no. And you said it was a promise. That's not it. But when you receive a word from God, you write that down. I've got so many in my office and most of them are kind and encouraging. I've got one in my office. I haven't told anybody this. Um, It just says, you are God's man in Auburn. And every time I see that, I'm like, I, I just get so confident because I'm like, God, you have called me your guy today. Thank you. But I have this other one right next to it that makes me uncomfortable every time I see it. And it just says, you cannot control me. I don't know about you, but I try to manipulate and control God in ways that I don't even recognize in real time. If I feel like things are going bad enough, I'll try to obey a little bit more and pray a little bit more, thinking that somehow I sway the pendulum of what God may or may not do. I believe prayer moves the heart of God, and God's invited us into relationship, but you need to know this. You have never once manipulated or controlled the Son of God in any way. He did not die for you because of anything that you did, and he will not lead you based on anything that you see coming. He values you coming to him and sharing your thoughts and feelings. But I promise you, you have to learn to trust. He's in total control. And if he's in total control and fully loving, and this is happening in a way that makes no sense to me, he sees something I don't see. Shepherds see more than sheep. Jesus asleep saw more than disciples who saw storm. He saw an opportunity to meet with you right here tonight and go, I can bring peace and quiet to the storm inside your soul, and it will come the moment you give me permission to be God. You cannot control me. Let's follow a God who's unsafe because he's given us everything we need to know to trust in him when we don't understand. Here's where this message lands. I don't have any points. I have one point. Faith. You're gonna to have to have faith to trust in the promises of God, but here's the bad news. Faith is not a virtue you can develop. It's a gift that God gives. So we try to conjure up faith to believe, and we're like, I just gotta believe, I gotta trust him. No, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. If you need faith, ask him. God, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the greatest prayers in the entire Bible. I wanna have faith. And what you need to do tonight is entrust your unknown future to a fully known God. God, you've made yourself known to me through Jesus. Give me faith to trust you when this journey takes turns that I don't understand. Give me faith to just blindly believe, even when you call me to do something that on paper looks ridiculous and borderline stupid. Give me faith to trust you when you call me into spaces and places that don't make sense. And I'll tell you this, you pray that prayer, that's a yes from God every single time. You don't need to develop the faith to trust in a God who you can't see where he's going. You need to look to heaven tonight and go, God, I need faith to trust you just like the disciples needed faith to believe. That what happens out there does not reflect on your heart and your compassion and your care to me. Would you stand up all over this room? The band's gonna come up here, and I just wanna ask, you can put your notes away, that we stay in this moment. God is doing something so special and so significant in individual lives right now. If you would, close your eyes, bow your heads all over this place. I just want a collective prayer to rise up right now, and I want that prayer to be so simple. God, give me faith to trust you even when I can't see it and even when I don't recognize what your hand is doing. Heavenly Father, I don't know where this message is going to land with every story and situation in front of me. And God, thinking about the future of the almost a thousand people in front of me right now is mind-boggling to think about how many paths you're going to take them down. Where they're going to question your goodness and they're going to question whether or not you care. I pray that you give them the faith that it takes to trust in your promises. I pray that you give them the faith to look back on things that you're whispering right here and right now and for decades to trust in you. God, we're not asking for like a flash pan moment where we go, we trust you, give us faith, God. No, we're asking for a sustained faith that over time we would trust you through hospital rooms and through tough conversations and through moments where we just want to give up and through sleepless nights and through difficulty. Jesus, you Make the darkness tremble, and you made that sea calm. Come and calm the storm of distrust in our hearts and minds. We love you. We give you this time. We give you our songs. Help them be more than songs. Help them to be surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's sing together.